North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. You guys know me. I'm Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm your host. Thanks for the continued support and all of your listens. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you guys don't know me, you can check out my website, drlaurennoel.com. That's E-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com. If you guys missed last week's show, it was a really good one. We had Dr. Carrie Louise Donnell on the show. She's a really um, successful doctor out in Denver, and we were talking all about how to heal the aging metabolism. You know, you're working out, you're eating all the right things, you're doing everything that you've always done, and yet you're basically packing on the pounds, and it's just not working the way that it used to. So we talked a lot about a lot about that last week and how to really heal that from a cellular level and fix that to where those hard efforts that you guys are putting out finally you know, actually work for your benefit. So check out the show. All of the uh, archive shows you can get it on my website, drlaurennoel.com. And also, uh, my show is a podcast. If you guys don't know, you can check that out and download it as an MP3 and have it on your player and work out to it and road trip to it and all that good stuff. So we have some really good content for you. Let's see here. Announcements. Next week's show, we will have Dr. Katie Shanahan on. She is a medical doctor. She's the author of Deep Nutrition, which I flipped through quite a bit. I'm excited to really sink my teeth into it after this show. And it's all about traditional diets and how to, you know, positively affect your genes with traditional um, diets and why you really need it from a cellular and from a genetic level. So excited to have her on the show. She's a really very smart cookie. I talked about this event a few months ago, The Run. This is an event with a a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Dennis Godby and his sons, and they have been running for the last three months. While we've been just doing our thing and living our lives, he's been running this whole time for the last three months across the United States from San Francisco all the way to Connecticut to spread awareness for natural medicine. It's a 9,000-mile run, and it's nearing its end and will conclude in less than three weeks, and he is still alive. Dr. Godby urgently requests financial support to help publicize the movement of natural medicine as a healthcare solution for all Americans. Visit therun.org to support the cause. Even if it's just a few dollars, it really does make a difference. So today we have a very special guest on the show, Chris Kresser. I've been following Chris Kresser for a few months now and really impressed with his work. He's just very thorough um, in his research, and he's really great with keeping in touch with his list and with email, and so I I love reading what he he does. Um, I'll go ahead and read his bio here. So Chris Kresser is an integrative uh, medical practitioner. He's the creator of the chriskresser.com. It's a popular blog and podcast challenging mainstream myths on nutrition, health, and disease. Chris was recently ranked as a, as a top 10 trusted authority in the nutrition and health community, along with the best-selling authors Gary Taub, Dr. Michael Eads, and Rob Wolf. His blog and podcast are among the most popular and fastest-growing resources in the paleo and the real food genre. Chris is known for his in-depth research uncovering myths and misconceptions in modern medicine and for shedding light on underrated and overlooked ancient wisdom and natural health solutions with proven results. 
With a private practice in Berkeley, California, and patients around the world via telephone and Skype, Chris has attracted a passionate and engaged following of more than 20,000 email and social media subscribers. That's pretty good. Chris obtained his bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley and his master's degree in traditional oriental medicine from the Acupuncture and Integrative Medicine College in Berkeley, California, and he lives in Berkeley with his wife and his new daughter, which we'll definitely talk about tonight. So we're very excited to have him on the show and talk about this topic of healthy babies, how to conceive in a healthy way, how to have a healthy pregnancy, and how to continue those health benefits into babyhood and early childhood with these kids. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Dr. Lawrence. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. I've heard you a few times on other shows, and uh, it's great to have you on this show. Um, I love the information you, you give out, and, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you sent out in your emails have actually challenged some of the things that I was taught. So, you know, it's great. I'm like, really? And I click on that, I read more, and it's like, wow, that is really, really cool. Some of these things are just so accepted, and, it's you know, we got to continually learn and keep our, our minds open, and you definitely demonstrate that. Great. I'm glad you benefited from it. Yeah. So I know that you just had a baby, right? When was this? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you can hear in the background. She's uh, it, she's three months old, or you know, like fourteen weeks um, this this Saturday. So um, it's really exciting. It's our first child, and um, you know, our life has forever changed for the better. I bet. What is it like just putting all of this information that you learn to practice? It's totally different from teaching it, right? It's like you're actually living this now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's kind of how the product evolved. I mean, um, I, I had a really personal motivation. My my wife, is uh, she's 40 and I'm 37, so we got a little bit of a later start than a lot of people do. And yeah, when you know we started trying about two years ago, and like a lot of your listeners, I'm sure it, it can relate to it. It didn't go quite as smoothly as we had imagined or hoped it would. Um, mm-hmm. So after after a few months of trying, um, we we still hadn't been successful, and so I, you know, we were already starting from a, pre, you know, a pretty healthy diet, and you know we took good care of ourselves. So. Um, I just really, I'm kind of a research geek and, um, you know, a, a practitioner of, of uh, holistic medicine, so that was my bias, and I just dove into the scientific literature and and um, started studying a lot of uh, traditional cultures and, you know, try to find some of the common themes in all of the traditional diets and then link that up with what I was seeing in the modern medical literature and, and um, tried to put it all together and, and into a system that made sense for me that my my wife and I could follow. And uh, we started doing that in, in earnest. And um, then, in, you know, in October of last year, we conceived. And um, that was, of course, one of the happiest days of our life. And then we employed those principles all the way through the pregnancy. And Sylvie was really healthy. She was you know, eight and a half pounds, um, and she's she continues to thrive, and it's just been a pleasure to see how how well all this stuff actually works. You know, firsthand. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That is so exciting. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, for amazing. sure. So, you know, you, this is the first time you've been on this show, and I've I've heard a little bit about your bio on on other shows, but for those of us. Uh, for those of listeners who haven't heard of you before, which I don't know if that's the case, but um, give give them a little bit of information about your background and how you got to be Chris Presser and with the you know the specialty that you have. Okay, yeah. So um, 
I was I spent a lot of my 20s uh, at least my the first part of my 20s traveling uh, living overseas and I was in Indonesia and I got really really sick there you know that the, the um, classic kind of tropical illness thing I, I got I was for a few days I was completely out of it um, I, I don't really remember much of that time but I was had a, luckily a, uh, um, someone was with me taking care of me and kind of um, brought me back to, to the land of the living. But I, after that, I was um, still really sick after that acute episode passed. And, um, you know, long story short, spent a number of years um, trying to figure out what was going on and to recover from that. And that got me interested in, in medicine. I actually considered going to medical school and was doing a post-bac you know, I was going to do a post-bac pre-med program and um, interviewed a bunch, thought it might be a good idea to interview a bunch of doctors to see what they thought about being a doctor in the profession. And after talking to five doctors, um, all five of whom told me they they wouldn't go into medicine if they could do it over again, and after, you know, paying a little bit more attention to what the direction of, of, you know, conventional medicine is today, I decided that that wasn't the best path for me, and so I went to acupuncture school and, um, you know, started to really learn how to research. We had, you know, like you did, I'm sure we had research methodology classes, and and I got really interested in that. And I had a great mentor, uh, Stanford NIH researcher, who taught my research methodology class, who I'm still in touch with, and just got really interested in being able to read the, the scientific literature myself and, and make sense of it and critique it because um, that felt like a goldmine of information if I could learn to understand it. And so I, I started to do that, and I started to write about my research um, about four or five years ago on a blog. I started a blog called The Healthy Skeptic, which is, is basically just like a journal for me to keep track of my thinking. And I was really surprised to learn that people were actually reading it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, one thing led to another, and, and uh, here I am. I'm, I have a private practice in Berkeley, California, and I also consult with patients all over the world by telephone and Skype. And... Um, you know, I specialize in working with people who haven't been able to find help anywhere else. So, in, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of I'm kind of the end of the line for a lot of my patients, and because that's you know that's the kind of thing I struggled with, and and so I wanted to be the kind of practitioner that I was always looking for during during my journey. And so that's what I I try to do as best I can. Yeah, and it's it's so apparent in the things that you write that you really do read these journals very uh, critically, and you it, you can tell you just read the, the full version, not just reading the conclusions, because you can get so much different information out of it with that, right? That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always fascinating to read a study, and I'm like nodding my head the whole time as I'm reading the study, Yep, 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 and then I get to the conclusion, and the conclusion, which is of course what they include, you know, what they what you can read in the abstract, says something completely different than the whole entire study was saying, and I, I think part of that is that you know research, two thirds of medical research is sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, so um, you know for a, a researcher and a department to get a grant to do a study. There, there are actually, you know, there are economic and political considerations, and even if their data shows one thing, it can sometimes be hard to um, come out and say that in the conclusion and in the abstract because 
there's a lot more riding on it than just the actual data itself. You know, there's the future funding, you know, funding for future studies and, um, you know, the, their reputation with their their um, advisor and then the, the department's relationships with their funders. And so, unfortunately, it's, it's, uh, it's never just about the data. There's a lot of um, political and economic considerations that really guide the research agenda. Mm-hmm. You have to see who it's funded by for sure and see why it has a certain tone to it. Yeah, that's well, a good place to start. Yeah, for sure. Let's jump into it and uh, just, you know, first off, you know, we're talking about having healthy babies. And and it's a lot more than just having a healthy baby because once they're born, you know, what you did helps them to be a healthy baby. It goes beyond so much of, of childhood, right? I mean, that's one thing oh, I love yeah. about your program is you talk about how what a woman does while she's pregnant, even before, affects her affects her baby even way into the distance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is actually a fairly new um, field of research. It's called the the developmental origins theory or the fetal origins theory. Uh, of course, it's long been recognized by traditional cultures. I'm sure Dr. Uh, Shanahan is it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're having on next. We have her book here, and I really like it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure she could talk about this too. But um, traditional cultures have always known that the the diet, the foods we eat before, even before conceiving, and certainly during pregnancy and during nursing, are going to have a profound effect on not only the health of the baby at birth and during infancy and childhood, but for you know the entire for for that baby's entire life. But modern science has has kind of rediscovered this idea and they've named it the developmental origin theory and it holds that the nutritional environment in the womb um not only again affects health at birth and during early childhood but also determines our lifelong risk of of degenerative diseases like obesity and heart disease and diabetes and they they've gone so f- as far as to say that the 9 months of pregnancy are, is the most consequential period of our lives in terms of health, which is pre- a pretty dramatic statement, you know. Um, it, they, the, that period of time can permanently influence the wiring of the brain, uh, the functioning of the organs like the heart and the liver and the pancreas. And that idea suggests that the conditions we encounter in the womb shapes everything from our susceptibility to disease, to our appetite and metabolism, and to, you know, to our intelligence and temperament. So there was there's one kind of uh, landmark study that was done in the UK, and it's often referenced, you know, when people talk about this theory. And what they did is they looked at um, birth weight, which is primarily influenced by maternal nutrition, meaning you know low birth weight babies tend to be um, are more frequently born uh, to women who are malnourished during pregnancy. But what they found was that um, babies that were under, you know, six pounds at birth had a significantly greater risk of developing heart disease before they were 65 years old than than babies that weighed eight pounds or more. And there was a linear association, meaning the, the lower, you know, the, the, the um, lower weight the, the baby was born at, the higher their risk of developing heart disease when before 65 years of age. And the greater the weight of the baby up until nine and a half pounds, 
the lower the risk. And then once the baby got above nine and a half pounds, the, the risk started to go back in the other direction because that's kind of getting into like macrosomia territory and, you know, like babies that are born to women with gestational diabetes. But this was a really profound finding because it, it gave, you know, it was evidence suggesting that something that happened in the womb could affect one's health as long as 60, 65 years later after birth. And even future generations, right? That's right. Um, and and uh, Kate talks about this in her book. Uh, there are genes, um, epigenetic patterns that get switched on um, based, you know, based on a, a mother's nutrition and even a father's nutrition. And then those patterns or those tendencies can be passed on to future generations. So um, it, it's, a, it's a really important field of research and, and um, just being aware of how significant our choices are, you know, before we conceive and, and during pregnancy is the, the best place to start. The good news is that um, some, you know, a lot of studies suggest that if you're coming from a, a, a place of not the greatest health yourself, maybe your parents weren't aware of this information, and you know, a, a lot of people in, in my generation at least weren't breastfed um, because at that time, you know, breast breastfeeding was kind of scorned and and considered, uh, you know, formula was considered to be a healthier choice. Somehow, I'm not quite sure how they how they convince people of that. But um, the good news is that just uh, eating a really nourishing, healthy diet um, before you conceive and during pregnancy can, can reverse a lot of that so that uh, your your baby uh, has a really good chance of being healthy um, even if you aren't. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, the body has a very innate ability to heal and to mm-hmm. repair itself. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Let's Let's go from a place of like before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and then after pregnancy. So starting with before, um, it is amazing to me how common I see patients who come in the door and can't get pregnant. It's just, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. And yeah. let's talk about some of these reasons why it's so hard for couples to get pregnant nowadays. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, we the modern life is just pretty crazy and a lot of mm-hmm. people are busy and it, it can be difficult to find the time to um do the things we need to do from a nutritional perspective. But the other problem is that there's a lot of conflicting information out there, you know. So let's say somebody decides they they want to get pregnant and they know that diet's important and they go on the Internet and start researching, you know, what kind of diet is best for fertility. They're, they're going to be literally assaulted with um, so much conflicting, contradictory information and unless they really have training, you know, on how to decipher all that, it can just be totally overwhelming. And um, people, you know, it's easy to just shut down and say, forget it, I'm just going to keep eating, you know, what I'm eating. Um, and that's why my my approach has always been to not just rely on traditional wisdom, not just rely on um, clinical experience and not just rely on modern science, but to put them all together because that's the only way I think that's, I mean, we have access to all three of those channels uh, of, you know, ways of generating knowledge now. And I think putting them together and making sure that a particular philosophy about nutrition checks out, you know, 
from all of those perspectives is the best way to figure out, um, you know, an approach that is safe and effective. So in terms of uh, conception and fertility, all, all traditional cultures had sacred fertility and pregnancy foods. And in studies of Native people around the world, researchers have found that all, all of these cultures um, had foods that they fed to, to mothers-to-be and actually even fathers-to-be. And these included things like fish eggs, uh, liver and other organ meats, bone marrow, uh, egg yolks, raw dairy, and other animal fats. And, of course, most of the things on this list are not things that we normally consume. You know, most people normally consume these days, either because they've just fallen out of favor or because people are afraid to eat them, you know, because they've been told that egg yolks raise your cholesterol and cause heart disease or, uh, you know, um, liver and, and, and organ meats are, are, like, toxic or harmful for you or something like that. Um, right. But the traditional people knew intuitively, of course, they didn't have scientific instruments. They just knew from, you know, oral tradition and from their ancestors that these foods were loaded with the nutrients that promote conception and now we've validated that with modern science. So, for example, liver, which is a sacred food in many different cultures, um, I have a chart uh, that you probably saw in the Healthy Baby Code that compares the nutrient content of liver with um, blueberries, which are you know kind of considered to be the most nutrient-dense fruit, and kale, which is one of the most nutrient-dense vegetables. And... Uh, basically, liver has more of each micronutrient, you know, vitamin and mineral, than kale and blueberries, except for two, which would, which are calcium and vitamin C. Liver has more folate, more B12, more B6, more niacin, more vitamin D, more vitamin A, um, more iron, potassium, phosphorus, you know, the, the list goes on and on. It's really kind of nature's superfood. and. Uh, it's, it's rarely consumed these days, but it's one of the best things somebody can do. It's like, you know, way better than taking a multivitamin. Yeah, uh, I think you said it's, na- it's nature's multivitamin, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. And it's How a lot deeper than multivitamins, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can, you can get grass-fed liver in most places for like four bucks a pound or less. So it's, um, you know, it's it's really affordable for most people. So how often do you eat liver? Uh, I have to confess, I don't love liver. <laughs> I, I, I know how good it is for me, but I here's the, here's two ways that, uh, and I talk about this in Healthy Baby Code. Um, there's two sneaky ways to get more liver into your diet if you're someone like me who doesn't enjoy the taste of it. Um, so one is to uh, get the liver, buy liver, and you stick it in the freezer for two weeks, and that will kill. Oh, sorry. So you get the liver and you slice it into very um, small pieces, like about the size of a pill or a tablet. And then you put those on a plate or something and cover it with uh, cover it with something and put it in the freezer. And then you you leave it there for two weeks, and that kills any any potential pathogens that might be uh, that could be in the meat. And then you take it out and you just take about six to eight of those little frozen liver capsules and that's great because it's it's actually it hasn't been cooked so all the micronutrients are intact um so that's probably like the best way to get liver in in, you know into your diet if you can't if you don't like the taste the second way is um you just take you know like an ice cube tray and you cut 
liver into pieces that would fit into each cube in the tray, and then you freeze it. And then if you're cooking ground beef, like, you know, hamburgers or taco meat or something like that, you just take out one of those little pieces of liver and you chop it up and you mix it together with the ground beef, and you can't even taste it that way. And if we do that, you know, every time we cook any kind of ground meat, and that, and then that's another way of, of kind of sneaking liver into your diet without knowing that you're eating it. Interesting. I like the stealth health techniques. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> I never even thought of that, little liver pills. Oh, yeah, those are great. Yeah. I mean, my wife likes likes the taste of it. Um, she was she ate liver growing up, whereas I, yeah. I didn't. And I, I don't know. I, it's just... Uh, it's a strong taste and it's an, it's a different texture, so I find that people either generally either really like it or really don't like it. Hmm. I think it's I think it's okay. It's not one of those things I crave, but actually, you know, sometimes I kind of I I feel like I do crave it to an extent, but then I'm like I'm not going to eat liver, but I'm going to give yeah. I'm going to give that pill thing a try. That's really cool. Yeah, it works. Um, so one thing I find a lot with with my patients who have infertility problems is um, they are deathly afraid of fat. And they, they're kind of on this PCOS spectrum with this whole insulin sensitivity thing. Can you speak a little right. bit about this in your experience and, yeah, and sure. how that wasn't the case long ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, fat is a really crucial nutrient when it comes to fertility um, and general health, of course. But it's even more important for people who are trying to get pregnant and for women who are nursing, um, breastfeeding. So for most you know, a large part of our evolutionary history, we've been eating a relatively high-fat diet, and evolution has optimized our biology for this kind of diet. Um, it's interesting to consider that breast milk, which is, of course, the perfect food for infants, you know, Mother Nature has had a few million years to get this one right, so it would be silly to ignore uh, that wisdom. Breast milk is 55% calories from fat, um, 38% calories from carbon and, and 7% protein. Um, fat is the preferred energy source of the body. Uh, the, the lean human body is about 75% saturated fat and 26% protein. Fat's the structural part of every cell. It's the preferred fuel for the mitochondria, which are the little energy-burning units of the cell. Um, the human body stores all excess energy from food for future use as fat. Um, so it's really uh, the cleanest fuel source for, for the human body. And, um, you know, our ancestors instinctively knew that, and a lot of the foods that I mentioned earlier that were sacred fertility foods were foods that are were rich in, in traditional fats, like the fats that come from animal products, uh, things like coconut oil and then the uh, you know omega three fats that come from fatty fish and and shellfish. So these are all uh, really important to um, to just core cellular structural function. And in terms of PCOS, as you pointed out, uh, PCOS is is usually caused. Uh, or contributed to significantly by insulin resistance. And what happens is when a woman is insulin resistant, she starts to convert estrogen into testosterone. And then she becomes some, somewhat, you know, has excess levels of testosterone, and that leads to the characteristic symptoms of PTOS, like, uh, you know, facial hair and weight gain, particularly around the middle, and infertility, um, 
And so if you're insulin resistant, the last thing you want to do is eat uh, a really high carbohydrate diet, especially with a lot of processed and refined carbohydrates. Um, that That's pretty much a disaster for, for people who are insulin resistant. Uh, and yet that's what a lot of the conventional dietary advice recommends. And, um, you know, a lot of women are put on a low-fat type of diet when uh, if, their practice, if their doctor even talks to them at all about diet uh, when they're trying to conceive. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a disaster. Right. Yeah, it's just like this big, huge topic that needs to be talked about that's just not even touched upon. And I, and I really do think that if these women who are on IVF, um, if they were just to start adding a ton of fat in their diets, the right fats, I think a mm-hmm. lot of these infertility problems would just go away. You've got to have the building blocks for healthy hormones. You can't yep. just replace it. Yeah. Exactly. I think you're right. And there's a, there's a doctor in Florida who, you know, he's a reproductive endocrinologist, a fertility specialist, and he... Uh, he's treating people with uh, PCOS and and um, other issues like that with a really high-fat, low-carb diet. And he, um, he said that uh, before he started that approach, you know, when they were using the more conventional, low, medium-fat diet, 40 to 50% of his patients required drugs to get pregnant and the remainder needed IVF. And now that he's using a high-fat diet, he's said that very few of his patients now need uh, IVF to get patients. To, to get pregnant, so it, it's a. I mean, he's got a lot of experience. Uh, I see that in my clinic all the time with women that come to me with fertility issues. So um, I, I think you're right. Yeah, it's it's really amazing stuff. I, I tend to use that approach with my patients too, and I, I find that that has, it plays a huge role in their uh, their hormonal balance. Um, now, I don't think I mentioned to all you listeners here. Um, we do have a, a special actually going on for. Chris Kresser's program, he put together an online course called the Healthy Baby Code, and all this information and more you get on there. And I've, man, it's major brain candy, Chris. I've been sitting here for the last few hours just looking through all your videos, and I am so excited to just go through all of them again. Um, I think it's it's actually important for anyone who just wants to be healthy. I don't think you even have to be wanting to get pregnant because, really, the, the healthier you are, the more f- fertile you are, and that's what this is all about is get healthy and the fertility naturally follows. So for all you guys listening, check out the program, uh, Dr. Low Baby, D-R-L-O-Baby.com. You can check out the program. And actually until Friday at 11.59, we have a special for $50 off of the program. So get that for yourself. Get that for your loved ones who want to uh, get babies. Uh, let's see here. Chris, I want to talk about something you talked about in your program, um, and I love that you touched on this, and lean protein, why it's bad. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is fun because, uh, you I, you know, I grew up in the uh, – I was born in 1974, so I kind of grew, grew up in the lean protein craze time, you know, when everyone was having, uh, uh, you know, egg white omelets and boneless, skinless chicken breasts and uh, fat-free uh, milk. And, you know, maybe it seems like it, the, the trend has gone away from that a little bit more, but it, it's still uh, – it, the, the idea is still out there. So the problem with lean proteins, there's a few problems, but uh, one of the main ones is that you, we need fat-soluble vitamins to assimilate and absorb protein. So these are the vitamins A, D, K2, E, and the various quinones. And these fat-soluble vitamins are found, uh, not surprisingly, exclusively in fats, and particularly animal fats. 
So lean protein has no fat and thus no fat-soluble vitamins. So what happens when you eat a lot of lean protein with no fat, your body will actually pull out your the fat-soluble vitamins you have stored in the liver to absorb and assimilate the protein. Uh, so a high-protein, low-fat diet is really was one of the fastest ways to become deficient in the fat-soluble vitamins. And the reason that that's important is that those fat-soluble vitamins play a crucial role in fertility. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. But um, the, the gist of it is that we really need fats to absorb protein. And when you eat a lot of protein without fat, you can really deplete your store of, of fat-soluble vitamins. Got it. What about uh, the, the fear of vitamin A as we're talking about fat-soluble vitamins? Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah, that's a good good one to talk about. Um, so vitamin A, just you know, stepping, stepping back a little bit, uh, researchers have known since it was discovered how important it was to reproduction. It is to reproduction. Uh, it promotes a full-term pregnancy. It prevents prolonged labor, promotes proper development of the whole facial structure, like the eyes and the nose and the dental arches and the lips. Uh, it prevents deafness and internal organ displacement, plays a key role in the development of the immune system and kidney health, and then... Uh, to maintain the cells that line the lungs. Um, so, you know, multiple roles that are really crucial for a developing baby. And when you've looked at uh, traditional cultures and, you know, uh, estimated what their vitamin A intake would be, uh, people like the Greenland Inuit, for example, back before they had much contact with the, the, the modern world, probably got about 35,000 IU of vitamin, of vitamin A. But as a lot of your wow. listeners probably know, the medical profession warns pregnant women that any anything above 20,000 IU of vitamin A increases the risk of birth defects. So a lot of women now are really scared uh, about taking vitamin A. But it turns out that this warning was traced to a single study that supposedly found an increase in birth defects from mothers who consume more than 10,000 IU per day. But if we take a deeper look at this study, this is what we find. Um, the study authors claim to find a 2.5 times higher risk of total birth defects and a, about a five times greater risk of cranial neural crest defects in the, in the group that had you know, high vitamin A intake. But this study has been really criticized in the scientific literature. Um, three separate groups of experts have questioned how the authors classified birth defects, and they pointed out that uh, the study authors underestimated the normal rate of birth defects in the overall population, uh, which in turn made the rate of birth defects in the study seem abnormally high. So, for example, several studies show that the rate of birth defects in the general population who definitely consumes less than 10,000 IU of vitamin A a day is about 3.5%. But in the study, the rate of defects in, in women consuming less than 10,000 IU was only 1.5%. So something was definitely fishy there. And then they they found that the rate of defects among women in the study who, who consumed more than 10,000 IU was about 3%, which is even lower than the rate of defects in the overall population. So, you know, long story short, the study wasn't credible. And then we have four or five other studies um, covering over 600,000 births combined that show that doses of 20 to 40,000 IU not only are not harmful, but actually in most cases carry like, you know, 50% lower risk of birth defects, 
um, or, you know, these women had improved outcomes over women who weren't taking vitamin A. And then there's the question of is there is there a difference between taking synthetic vitamin A in a pill form and taking natural preformed vitamin A that, you know, in, in like the food like you would get when you eat liver or you take something like cod liver oil? Um, and there's definitely a difference. Um, and then there's the... The, the the last thing, which is that uh, vitamin D, which is another fat-soluble vitamin, and vitamin K2 protect against vitamin A toxicity. So all of the fat-soluble vitamins exist in a synergistic relationship, and there are a lot of studies that show that vitamin D reduces the toxicity of vitamin A and vice versa. So, for example, a hypothetical person who's about 160 pounds, this study found that supplementing with vitamin D raised the toxicity threshold of vitamin A to 200,000 IU per day. So just to give you an idea of how much liver you'd have to eat to get 200,000 IU vitamin A, it's about um, about 27 ounces of liver. So a pound and, what's that, a pound and a half? I, I guarantee you nobody out there is eating a pound and a half of liver a day. Even people who really like it would find that to be extremely difficult. So the message is, as long as you're getting adequate vitamin D and K2, which we're going to talk about in the Healthy Baby Code, and as long as you're not taking massive doses of synthetic vitamin A supplements, eating foods that are rich naturally in vitamin A, like organ meat and cod liver oil and grass-fed butter, is only going to benefit you and your baby. Awesome. For those who just tuned in, we're talking to Chris Kresser, the creator of the Healthy Baby Code. You can learn more at drlowbaby.com. And also, if you guys want to call in and ask a question, our phone lines are open, 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. Chris, I would love for you to talk about folic acid. I saw you sent an email about that out um, a few weeks ago, and it was I'm sure it definitely caused quite a stir. Can you talk a little bit about folic acid? Sure. So um, folate uh, is the uh, a vitamin that probably most pregnant women or women who are considering get pregnant know about. It's essential um, for reproductive health. It's needed for the production of new DNA, and new DNA is, of course, needed for all new cells. And when you have a growing fetus, um, that involves constant cell division and production of new red blood cells, which in turn requires a large supply of folate. So folate is one of the most crucial nutrients that we need for conception and for a healthy pregnancy. Um, but the the crucial thing to understand here is that folate, which are naturally occurring in, in, in vegetables and some other foods, which I'll talk about in a second, um, and liver, which we already talked about, that's not the same as folic acid. Um, folic acid is a chemical that's not normally found in foods of the human body, and it's you know it's basically only found in supplements in synthetic form. And folic acid can be converted into usable forms of folate, but that conversion is complex and it's it's really limited in humans. So um, what happens is if somebody takes folic acid and they don't convert it into folate, they end up with 
unmetabolized folic acid floating around in their blood, and that has been shown to increase the risk of cancer in several studies. So, um, and the dose that can cause unmetabolized folic acid is not that high. It's it's, it's as low as 600 to 800 micrograms, uh, and a lot of uh, doctors recommend, you know, a milligram or more of folic acid during pregnancy. So it's really important that this message get out there and that um, women who are, you know, uh, considering conceiving and who are pregnant um, not take high doses of folic acid during pregnancy and instead uh, either eat folate-rich foods like liver and dark leafy greens or take a supplement that has folate in it. And if you look on the, the label, it should say folate, or it should say 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate, which is quite a, a mouthful, but you're still looking at the end, of the end of the word to see that it says folate. And if it says folic acid, uh, that's, you don't want that. So I know uh, Thorne makes a, a folate, a natural folate. Peer Encapsulations makes a natural folate. Uh, these are supplement companies in the U.S. I'm not as familiar with uh, other brands overseas. Um, there are quite a few now that, that use folate, but it's uh, you can always tell by looking at the label. Got it. I was going to ask, actually, about the, the 5-tetrahydrofolate, <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. you touched that's on that. The, yeah. that's, the chemical, that's the chemical name of folates, um, 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate. That's the full yeah. name, but it's, it's much easier, obviously, just to say folates, so... Um, the highest sources of folate, by the way, in the diet are liver, uh, particularly chicken liver is really high in folate. Um, legumes like lentils, which I'm not a huge fan of, but uh, they're a really good source of folate. And then dark leafy greens are a great source of folate as well. So um, I think in general, even if you're eating a fair amount of liver and dark leafy greens as an insurance policy, I do recommend that women who are pregnant supplement with um, natural folates in, in addition to what they're getting through the diet just because it's so important and it plays so many uh, essential roles in reproductive health. Absolutely. But definitely the form is important. Um, let's go ahead and take a caller here. This is a caller from the 612 area code. You're on Dr. Low Radio with Chris Kresser. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, my name's Heidi and I'm calling from Denver. Hi there. Thanks for having the show. <clears throat> um, I had a question. We have um, Kaiser Permanente, which is a very common insurance out here, mm -hmm. and I think in California as well. And our options as far as looking for fertility, is they're just so limited. Um, we've basically been told you can go the route of IUI or IVF or we won't see you. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering for people who are in a um, kind of a financial tough spot, uh, what do you recommend? Do you recommend going through a diet for a year, for two years? Um, do you think jumping straight into IUIs is the way to go? Because we feel pretty uncomfortable with how much pressure we receive from our insurance company. Yeah. Do you mind me asking uh, how old you guys are and, and you know how long you've been trying so far and um, where you're at in the whole process? No, no problem. Um, I just turned 27. My husband just turned 29. We've been mm -hmm. trying for approximately just about two years, just shy of two years, so about 22 months or so. Okay. Um, and I feel like we have a relatively healthy lifestyle. I mean, I do drink mm -hmm. soda. You know, I, we're not purists by any means, but we're both healthy. We both have good BMIs. We both eat a lot of good fruits, vegetables, whole foods. Yeah. So um, 
I would, uh, considering your age, you're both young and, you know, have quite a big window in terms of your uh, reproductive um, capacity, I would definitely consider implementing some of the recommendations in, in the Healthy Baby Code and eating a, a really, you know, a more nutrient-dense diet for a period of time and, and tightening things up a little bit. Um, maybe, you know, I, I generally don't recommend that people become zealots about food in any way. In fact, in the Healthy Baby Code, I talk about something I call the 80-20 rule, which is where 80% of the time you you follow the diet pretty closely and 20% of the time you, you know, eat the foods that, are uh, make you happy and are uh, available and convenient. So if you go out to eat with friends or something and maybe you have a dessert that, that you're not eating normally or maybe you eat something that you, you wouldn't normally eat because I think managing stress and, and, and um, you know, enjoying your life is really important part of health and, and, and reproductive health as well. But I would, uh, you know, I see a lot of patients like you, uh, Heidi, and uh, I've had a lot of success with this approach, and I think it's definitely worth a try before going on to to reproductive technology, especially considering your your age and um, where you're at. Great, thank you so much. And I'm sorry, you might have already said this, but do you recommend kind of a time frame of trying this diet for six months or trying this diet for nine months, or is um, it really sort of just case by case? It is case by case because it depends where people are coming from. You know, like if somebody is de- dealing with uh, health challenges and coming from a really kind of um, toxic diet, which it doesn't sound like is true in your case, then they would probably need to give it a little bit longer than somebody who's coming from a basically healthy place. Um, I would definitely give it six months. Uh, you know, for my wife and I, we were already eating a really pretty healthy diet, and it was just a question of fine-tuning and tweaking. And for us, it took a, another roughly six six to eight months after we really ramped things up. And we weren't, uh, I think, in one or two of those months, we maybe weren't trying really intense. You know, uh, we kind of took a, a step back a little bit, which I also think is important, by the way, um, to kind of cycle your efforts when you're trying to get pregnant because the stress of trying to get pregnant, as I'm sure you've already uh, Mm -hmm. discovered and experienced, can be pretty intense in its own right. So Mm -hmm. um, I often recommend that people, when they're trying to get pregnant, take intentional breaks where they just put it out of their mind as much as possible, go on vacation, do something fun. And I'll tell you, I see... A lot of times, you know, in my practice, people, that's when people get pregnant is when they're not trying to. So it's its a little bit of reverse psychology. But um, the point there, I think, is that uh, they kind of, people, what, what happens is they let their guard down a little bit. They're not thinking about it so much. They kind of unwind and, and their body's in a better place to conceive. All right. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Um. No, I mean that's a lot of what we've been what we've been told and I mean as you know as somebody who's who's been through the struggle, um, it is kinda hard to take a step back and not think about something that you yeah. know, um birth and pregnancy and starting a family is just something that you're so surrounded by and I think yeah. as a woman it it's sometimes hard just to kind of put that out of your mind. Um Absolutely. And I know yeah. there are some great practices, meditation and um mm-hmm. I've done the acupuncture route which I think helped um for a bit. Uh but yeah, I, I definitely um, do think yeah, that I would, your work I would carry a lot were, of weight. 
Yeah, if I were you guys, I would really like give give the nutritional route a, a really good shot because I mean it sounds like you're already doing a lot of good things, but it also sounds like there might be some room for improvement and just a little bit more focused attention on on the nutritional side um, before going down the the reproductive technology route. And even if you do choose to go down that road, I have a lot of patients who are who are using various kinds of reproductive technology and 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 the nutritional recommendations in the Healthy Baby Code still are applicable there. In fact, they make that whole process work a lot more smoothly. Like they, they'll increase the chance that all of those technologies will be effective. So e- either way you decide to go, I think, you know, um, really focusing on the nutritional aspect will, will be helpful for you. Great. Well, we'll definitely check it out. Thanks so much. Good luck. Thanks for your question, Heidi. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And also, Heidi, if you just tuned in, too, and all you listeners, until Friday, you guys get $50 off the whole program, so it makes it more cost-effective. And at checkout, just type in Dr. Low Baby as the code, and you'll get that discount. Um, and then there's the website is drlowbaby.com, and then Dr. Low Baby is the, the discount until Friday. Good stuff. Let's see here. So now that we're pregnant, um, let's talk about some things during pregnancy and kind of fly through that, and then we can talk about how to, um, you know, the things about breastfeeding and then reintroducing foods. Um, so let's see here. DHA. You talk a little bit about DHA, the importance of that, and and where uh, where patients should be getting that from. Yeah. So uh, DHA uh, is is crucial to the development of the brain and and vision. Um, it it plays a really important role in cognitive health. Uh, it's essential to growth and development, and um, it's it's actually not in that many foods. The, the re- only dietary source that it's present in in any significant amount is cold water fish or microalgae that the cold water fish eat. So um, one of the biggest myths is that we can meet our omega-3 fat needs by eating uh, plant-based foods like flax oil and walnut. So I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard a lot, you know, from the in the media about how important omega-3 fats are, and then and then people, you know, when they list the omega-3 fats, they list things like flax oil or flaxseed meal or walnuts, which there's certainly nothing wrong with those. But um, the the majority of the health benefits that we get from eating omega-3 fats come from the long chain omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA, and those are, as I said, only available in um, in, in fatty fish, and we we can convert some of the short chain omega three fats that are found in plant foods like flax and walnut into those long chain fats, but the conversion is really limited. In fact, we convert less than one half of one percent of those plant based omega threes into the longer chain ones. So what that means is you'd have to eat about a cup of flax oil a day to get enough EPA and DHA. And, you know, because of flax oil's laxative effect, I definitely don't recommend doing that. So it's much better to get get them from fish. And when I say cold water fatty fish, uh, in case you don't know what those are, that would be like salmon, mackerel, herring, sardines. Uh, Some of the shellfish like oysters are are really rich in in the long chain omega-3s. So... um, my recommendation is to eat about a pound of fatty fish per week, so that could be like three five ounce or six ounce servings. Um, and if you can't do that, 
uh, and even if you can, to, in addition, take uh, some fermented cod, li some cod liver oil, which contains some EPA and DHA. And I know some of the concerns that are popping up in listeners' minds is, what about mercury? What's your answer? Right. That? Yeah, let's talk about that. So. Um, I go into a lot more detail about this in the in the Healthy Baby Code, but I'll just give a quick overview. Um, so uh, there's been a, a lot of concern about the mercury levels in fish, and it's true that mercury uh, is, is a potent neurotoxin and can cause problems. Um, but that's only true if the fish doesn't have equally high levels of another mineral called selenium. And selenium, it turns out, has a high binding affinity for mercury. So when they're found together in a, in a, in a food like uh, fish or in an animal like fish, those, the selenium and mercury connect and they form a new substance. And that new substance isn't very well absorbed by humans. So... Um, this explains why studies show that selenium can prevent the adverse effects of mercury toxicity. Um, so you can you can kind of think of it as a, if, to use an analogy, you can think of selenium as if it were your income, and mercury as if it were a bill you had to pay. And just as we all need some you know money to cover our living expenses and our bills, we all need a certain amount of selenium for proper function. And um, if you eat a kind of fish that has uh, more, a lot more mercury than selenium, it's like getting a bill for $400 and a check for less than 100 bucks. And if you do that too often, you're, you're going to have problems, right? You're going to go bankrupt. And, and on the other hand, if you eat fish that have as much or more selenium than mercury, it's like getting a check in the mail for 500 bucks and getting a bill for 25 bucks. And the more that happens, the happier you are. So... Um, the good news is that the fish that most people eat uh, have much more selenium than mercury uh, or um, at least significantly higher levels of selenium than mercury. So these are common fish like tuna and salmon and um, you know pretty much all of the ocean fish and even most freshwater fish. The only exceptions, the, the only fish that uh, some people might eat that have uh, more mercury than selenium would be uh, swordfish, marlin, some species of shark, which aren't very commonly eaten in the U.S. at least, and then and pilot whale, which I, I don't think I've ever known anyone who's eaten pilot whale. So um, the good news is that you can eat fish uh, as long as they're, you know, ocean fish and, and don't include those species that I just mentioned. And... Uh, the benefits are really significant. Like an FDA report in 2008 showed that the nutrients in fish boost a child's IQ by 10 points. Uh, in that same report, they suggested that women eat 12 ounces of fish per week. I'm suggesting 16. Unfortunately, Americans on average only consume about 5 ounces per week of fish, which is less than half of the recommended amount. And up to 15% of women with ch that are of childbearing age don't eat any fish at all. Uh, despite the fact that these long-chain omega-3s are essential to proper development of the brain and the eyes and other vital organs. Wow. Yeah, it's so important, and just avoiding it, I, it's just that's just such a bad idea. Yeah, huh. yeah. It's unfortunate because, you know, the the 
the the information that gets out there it's powerful you know it affects people's lives in a really deep way and so just just saying that you know fish have mercury and that that idea has kind of permeated the mainstream now and a lot of women mm-hmm. are purposely avoiding fish even if they would eat it otherwise because of that yeah. uh, that idea so um, last yeah. thing I want to say about that though is DPA and EHA are also really uh, DHA and EPA excuse me are super important for fertility so. Studies have shown low, low levels of both of those fats in, uh, that are associated with infertility in women and that infertile men have lower concentrations of DHA and EPA in their sperm. So it's not only important once you get pregnant, but it's important uh, for fertility in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Our phone lines are open again, guys, 818-495-6919 if you want to call and ask a question. We only have probably about 10 more minutes. Um, Chris, let's jump into, God, there are so many things I want to ask you about, but I'll have to kind of cut it short. Yeah. Um, let's let's go into, um, once the baby's born, let's talk a little bit about breastfeeding, because that's just such an important, probably one of the most important things we could talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of breastfeeding? Sure. So uh, my, my recommendation is that um, babies be breastfed exclusively for six months, and this is actually consistent with what the World Health Organization recommends as well. Um, unfortunately, only about 35% of infants around the world are exclusively breastfed for, for six months. Uh, the, the truth is an infant doesn't need any other nutrients during that period of time, not even water, because breast milk is about 88% water, so they get plenty of it from the breast milk. Uh, breast milk, as I said earlier in the call, is... Uh, really nature's perfect food for babies. It, it, it meets all of an infant's nutrient requirements until six months of age. And at that time, as a baby starts to become more active at six months, uh, breast milk will no longer be enough to meet their caloric needs. But up until then, it, it's, it's all they need. Um, numerous, numerous studies have shown that breast milk confers both short and long-term benefits uh, on not only the child but the mother as well. It helps protect kids against acute and chronic uh, diseases because there are a lot of antimicrobial substances in breast milk, uh, like lauric acid, for example. Um, Breastfeeding prevents diarrhea and pneumonia, which are two of the most serious and life-threatening illnesses that that a baby could get. Um, and those diseases are much more severe and common in, in baby, babies that are formula-fed. Um, kids that are fed, breastfed exclusively for the six, first six months have a much more rapid growth and development than, than babies who are fed formula or, or even a combo of, of food and breast milk. Uh, and breastfeeding is associated with decreased risk of several diseases later in life. You know, earlier we talked about the fetal origins theory and how the a mom's diet during pregnancy influences health for the rest of uh, a baby's life, but we also know that whether a baby is breastfed or fed formula really significantly impacts their health, uh, their lifelong health. So, for example, um, breastfeeding decreases the risk of obesity and diabetes. Um, it decreases the risk of autoimmune conditions like asthma and allergies and Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Uh, it decreases the risk of cardiovascular disease and inflammatory bowel disease. So, um, I mean, we could talk, you know, probably a whole show about this, but it, it's it's really crucial. Uh, and I and I the good news is, and I, I'm, I'm sure you, um, 
a lot of your listeners are, are aware of this is breastfeeding is kind of coming coming back. You know, a, a lot more moms are breastfeeding now. I think a lot of doctors are recommending breastfeeding, and I think that the, the consciousness is shifting back in that direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very, very good stuff. Um, Chris, what else can we talk about in the next few minutes that would you be wanna, crucial for our listeners? Let's up, you you want to talk about uh, reintroduction of foods or sure, introduction yeah. of foods? That's a good, that makes sense since we're talking about breastfeeding. So six months, I mentioned, would be exclusive breastfeeding. And then for for most babies, if they start to become more active at that time, it's time to start introducing foods. So um, one of the most important things that people need to understand about food reintroduction for babies is that babies need fat. You know, we talked about the importance of fat earlier for adults, but it's even more true for, for babies because um, animal fats provide those fat-soluble vitamins that help with protein assimilation and growth and hormone production. Um, studies have shown that kids that are fed low-fat, low-cholesterol diets fail to thrive, so they don't grow and develop like kids that are fed you know, fat and dietary cholesterol. Um, fat and cholesterol are extremely safe for a baby. You remember that mom's milk is 55% fat, and the cholesterol in human milk is actually about six times the amount of what the average adult consumes in food. So that ought to tell you the importance of fat and cholesterol for for babies. It wouldn't be in mothers. It wouldn't be in milk if it wasn't crucial for our for our development. That's not how evolution works. So um, one of the important things, you know, in in a healthy baby code, I, I lay out a really detailed food reintroduction plan, but. We're, you know, we're kind of just talking about general principles here. I think I'd want most parents to understand that, you know, it's not important for for your baby to start eating a bunch of vegetables right off the bat because they don't even have the enzymes to digest the plant matter for the most part. The the most important nutrients for them to eat initially are fat and protein, and as they grow and develop and start to develop the digestive enzymes and the capacity to break down and assimilate um, the nutrients and vegetables, then that's the time when, you know, more, a wider range of vegetables and and fruits and stuff can be introduced. But fats and proteins are are more important. And even when you do introduce the vegetables, there should always uh, be some fat included because fats are required to absorb the nutrients in those vegetables. So, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why kids generally... Uh, don't love vegetables without any fat on them. <laughs> you know, yeah. once a kid gets older, if you start giving, if they won't eat broccoli, try putting butter or cheese on it and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, they will down that for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's better for them, so you don't have to feel guilty about it. So you talked about in your program about um, feeding an egg yolk as the first food. Why is this? Well, I mean, if 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 liver is nature's multivitamin, egg yolks are 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 a very close second. Um, they supply choline and cholesterol, which are both crucial to the developing brain and the nervous system. Um, the brain's dry weight, for example, is about 60% fat, and one quarter of your body's free cholesterol is found in the, in the nervous system. So we need cholesterol for synapse formation. The synapses are those connections between the neurons in the the brain. Um, They transmit messages back and forth. So cholesterol is essential to learning and memory. It's a critical component of cell membranes, which forms the whole structure of the brain. 
And cholesterol is also needed to activate the serotonin receptors, um, which is why low cholesterol is associated with problems like depression and violent behavior. So egg yolks are really nutrient-dense foods. They're they're full of cholesterol, um, choline, other vitamins and minerals that are uh, crucial to health. And they're very easy to digest, too. So they've got healthy protein, healthy fat, healthy micronutrients, which makes them an excellent for you know one of the excellent first food for a baby and and interestingly enough, the first food for many babies is uh goldfish right <laughs> right yeah exactly uh, the first food in in Africa for a lot of babies is uh liver that's been chewed up by mom doesn't sound so appetizing to us, but the babies love it. You know what? If that's the best thing for the baby, I will do that for my future child. I will chew up some liver and maybe make some liver pills or something. That's right. You'll be super mom and I you'll have super, su- super baby. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're looking forward to feeding Sylvie her first bite of liver. We got a few months to wait yet. She's pretty happy with her with her breast milk now. So. Well, your wife likes liver, so she can do the chewing of the liver. That's right. Her. I'm glad I don't have to play that role secretly. <laughs> Awesome show, Chris. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners in terms of information, and then we'll we'll tell them about a little bit about your program? Um, not in terms of information, but just to just to share how you know um, confident I am that, that making the right nutritional choices can make a huge difference. I've just seen such incredible changes and in, and in stories in, in, in my in my clinic. I work with a lot of, of women who've been trying to get pregnant for a really long time, uh, men as well, like male fertility problems. Um, and I, I'm just, it never ceases to amaze me how powerful uh, making the, the right nutritional choices can be. And, you know, we, of course, witness that firsthand uh, in our own experience, but I see it every day in my clinic, and it just continues to reinforce um, my my belief in this stuff. And, um you know, we're collecting now like a, a a gallery of healthy baby code babies, which is pretty fun. You know, like babies <laughs> that have been born. You know, when moms followed this approach, and and that's uh, that's like the thing that makes this all worthwhile for me. It um, makes it really fun to go to work every day. Wow, are you going to put together a photo album of all these babies? Yeah, that's what we're doing. I, I mean, I get I hear from people all the time, and and I'm now having them send in pictures and and also a photo album of pregnant women, you know, who are following the healthy baby code, and and we'll put that up on the healthy baby code page. So it's pretty. I love pretty that. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to when I was in naturopathic school, and I would look around and see the babies because everyone had babies in school. It's like the most fertile women of all time, just popping yeah. out babies. In in my class of 100 students, we had like 15 pregnancies that turn into uh-huh. deliveries and these babies are just big and chunky and the, the big cheeks and the big old thighs you could tell they just looked really healthy so something you're doing something right there right <laughs> but yeah. yeah but um so so your your program i i've i've talked a little bit about it to the listeners but kind of give us a, a you know synopsis of what your program's about and what what people will get when they get this program okay yeah so it it's i mean the basic the basic uh structure is it's it's six core modules and each core module uh has a a, a video presentation um but I've also included transcripts uh in PDF format and then MP3 recordings cuz you know people have all different kinds of learning styles I I know I I I do I often prefer reading to to watching videos cuz I can do it faster 
So we offer, you know, three different ways of, of getting through the material. Um, and the core modules cover all the basic stuff we've been talking about, like how proper nutrition um, contributes to the lifelong health of your baby. In the second module, we talk about macronutrients, like protein and fat and carbohydrate. That's a, a big topic. Every, you know, a lot of discussion about whether low-fat diet is best or a high-fat diet or low-carb or high-carb. We, we go over all that in detail. Uh, module three, we talk about micronutrients, so all the vitamins and minerals that have been proven to be essential for fertility and, and healthy pregnancy. In module four, we talk about food toxins. So these are um, uh, toxins that are not, not, not just like really processed and refined foods, but four commonly eaten classes of foods that contribute to infertility and poor health um, during and after pregnancy for moms and babies. Module 5, we talk about breastfeeding and first foods, which we discussed right at the end there. And then Module 6, we put it all together into a really clear, focused strategy um, uh, that's practical and easy to follow. Then we've got a, a bunch of uh, cheat sheets and worksheets to really help you put the material into practice, um, you know, a, a summary of all of the important recommendations, uh, a cheat sheet for snacking and travel and eating out, which is a real challenge for a lot of people, uh, shopping lists, shopping guides, uh, supplement guide, including recommended brands, um, which which uh, fats are best to cook with, um, a special uh, bonus guide to living gluten-free for people who have um, gluten intolerance. And then I've got a few bonuses that I think are really important, like um, a stress management audio recording. So uh, you can listen to this, and it can really help um, take things down a notch. And you know, as we were talking about with Heidi, the previous caller, um, help help um, relax the body and prepare it for conception. And then uh, we have a full two-week meal plan with recipes to give you an idea of what it would look like to eat this way for a couple of weeks and kind of get you started on that path. Awesome. It's a really great tool. I was really impressed when I logged on there and saw everything that you have there. So. I highly recommend checking it out, everybody. And, um, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Lauren. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being my, my guest. Um, we'll have to have you on in the future and talk about more uh, cutting-edge things that you're writing about in your blogs. I'm sure there will be a lot more to come. <laughs> I'd love that. For sure. Have an awesome night. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. All right, you guys. Thanks for tuning into the show. Definitely um, check out the program, Dr. Lowe, Baby. Dot com, or excuse me, is that right? Yeah, drlowbaby.com. And you can use until Friday the discount code for 50 bucks off, Dr. Low Baby. Definitely spread the word of that. Um, let's see, check out Chris's website, chriscresser.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-S-S-E-R.com. You for sure want to get on his email list because he always has really, really interesting stuff that he's sending out, keeping you updated of all the new research uh, next week's show with Dr. Kate Shanahan will be talking about deep nutrition and how traditional foods affect our genes. More information about me, drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com. I work with patients all over the U.S. as well as the world and, of course, locally here in sunny San Diego. Thanks for being our guest tonight, guys. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Bye. 
North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.